Good to see you. Happy Father's Day to all your fathers and those of you who have dads. Glad that you're here today and uh, that you chose to spend your time with us. Uh, you don't know me. My name is David. I serve on the pastoral staff. I'm thrilled that you're here in spite of the torrential downpour that happened earlier today. I was watching uh, rain go across the Panera parking lot like horizontally and I I had two thoughts. First of all, number one was, I hope our signs are okay in front of the building. And then I'm like, I wonder if this is going to affect attendance today at all. You know, you never know. And then all of a sudden it cleared out, and I think it's going to be hot again today. Uh, and now humid, too. Hooray. So it'll be fun. Okay, did, like, did you all like not take a shower today or something? Because everybody's over here, and it's, oh my goodness. I'm fine. I can barely sell. That's where the cool kids are. So, anyway, I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> yeah, come on over. Come on over. I'll just come to this side now. Right. Good grief. We are in a series uh, called Sunday School, where we are taking uh, some old favorites, uh, stories that you may have learned in Sunday School, and we're looking at them. Uh, through fresh eyes, hopefully more mature eyes. Uh, and in the process, we're teaching some Bible, um, basic Bible study skills. And it, really the thought here is the, f- the fact that when we, we present certain Bible stories to kids, we, we sanitize them to a certain degree, and, and appropriately so. There are some, uh, there's some things in the Bible that are, are very real, very raw, very gritty, and uh, I'm not sure that you necessarily want your you know, six, seven, and eight-year-old to know what those terms and what those ideas are. And, and so we, we, we appropriately um, change them up a little bit, de-emphasize certain things. Um, but as we get older, we need to revisit these things and try to understand them a, a little bit better. And we've already explored David and Goliath, and we learned that, you know, Goliath wasn't as uh, a bad dude as, as he first appears to be, and David wasn't a scrawny kid. And then last week we talked about Noah, and the story of Noah really isn't about Noah at all, but really about God differentiating himself from the other gods in the ancient Near East. And uh, I think it's been an interesting study for me. I hope it has been for you. And today I'm going to pick up another, another story, pretty famous one. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus calming the storm, which was ironic given what happened earlier this morning. And I'm like, hmm, could really use him in the boat right about now. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 4, the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament, and, uh, or you can plug it into your, your iPhone or, or um, Android, I think it has an app for it too. And uh, um, while you're turning there, let me just explain that um, Mark is a, was a close associate of Peter, and so this is often called Peter's Gospel. And so sometimes we get some details in Mark that we don't get in any of the other Gospels. But uh, in this biography of Jesus, there's this famous story about Jesus calming the storm. And I want to read through it, and then we're going to go um, talk about it in detail. Okay, Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse uh, 35. Mark 4, 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, this is Jesus, of course, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. He is on the Sea of Galilee. He's on one side traveling to the other. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat 
so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Which I'm presuming is a rhetorical question. Uh, he got up, <laughs> rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord and we believe it. Interesting, interesting story. There have been lots of sermons based on this. Uh, very often they kind of come to the same conclusion that if Jesus can calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee, then he can calm a storm in your life. Very common. And I had a professor in seminary. Her name, uh, her name was Sandy Richter. She stood about this tall and was an intellectual giant. And she told us in class that if we ever preached a sermon about Jesus calming the storm and could calm the storm in your life, that she would hunt us down and slap us silly. So I am preaching another sermon today on this passage to avoid pain. I'm just going to tell you that up front because my money is on the short lady with the attitude. Okay? That just usually is the case. Anyway, so I'm trying to do this. Anyway, we've got uh, a lot of things that are going on in this, in this passage. Very specifically, though, you have to keep in mind that even though there are fishermen in the boat, um, Peter, his uh, brother Andrew, James, and John, you have these fishermen in the boat, this is a big deal because... Uh, the types of boats that they would have had would have been relatively sh uh, shallow, and these types of squalls were very common because the Sea of Galilee is actually kind of up in the mountains. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of, of uh, you know, kind of some, some weather and some cultural things that are going on here, or I should say geographic, you know, specific things. But also within Jewish thought in general, the Jewish people, because the majority of them lived kind of up in the mountains, they're not a seafaring people. And so when you read through all of the Jewish writings, one of the more terrifying things that you'll come across time and time again in the scriptures and in some of the commentary on the scriptures is the fact that the sea is unknowable because we can't see into the depths of it. And so the most terrifying things in Jewish imagination are in the water, okay? Also, you have to remember that in that time period, uh, or previous to that time period, one of the local deities was a storm god named Baal. And so, you know, we could make some inferences here that Jesus is, you know, casting himself against all of these things. And, and uh, like I said, I think there's a number of lessons that we can learn from all of this. But what I want to do today is, is something a little bit different. I want to Look at this passage, but I want to zoom out a little bit more. And I want to suggest that this little story fits into a broader story. And I want to talk about that broader story. And so my interest is in chapter 3 to chapter 6. Uh, some of you may have heard me talk about this a little bit. But we have these bookends. Mark chapter 3. Is that a great bookend? I really need those on my shelf. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse uh, 13 through 15, and then again in Mark chapter 6. So let me, let me just read this to you um, so that you can hear it. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. 
Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be one with him, and that he might send them out to preach, number two, and three, verse 15, and to have authority to drive out demons. And then he lists who the 12 are. So keep that in mind. Chapter three, and he talks about that to be with him, might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Now, here's the interesting part of this. If you go to chapter six, verse seven, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Okay, so chapter three, he says, I want to do this. And in chapter six, he actually does it. So here's a big question. What happened in between? What was going on in, be, in between um, these, these two major chapters? And so let me just kind of explain it a little bit. And then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into it. So starting in chapter three, he calls them. Uh, and then uh, starting with, with chapter four, he does a major teaching on the kingdom of God and the word of God. Okay? Then we see this story about Jesus calming the storm. Okay? So see the progression here. Calls them, gives them some teaching. They see him calm the storm. The very next uh, story that we have is one where Jesus um, takes all of the demons in a guy and puts them in a group of pigs. And the pigs go and kill themselves. It's called the Gerasene demoniac. Okay? Then the very next story is interesting because it starts with a local leader explain, explaining to, or asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter because she's ill. And on the way there, he's met by a woman who has been bleeding for years and years and years. And he heals her. And then he goes to this girl who apparently has died while he was en route, and Jesus brings her back. Okay? And then finally, the last story is that he was uh, in his own hometown, but no miracles could happen because of their lack of faith, because they knew who Jesus was as a little boy. So there's this progression, and then in chapter 6, he sends them out. So... Chapter 3, which happens, and chapter 6, which happens, in between, we have training. It's a first Christian seminary, by the way, okay? I mean, you talk about training here. There are things that are happening here, and we need to talk about what's actually occurring. These are great sermons. There's lots of what we call sermon fodder, things that we can actually preach about. But all this entire series, we've been talking about assumptions because we all bring certain assumptions to the text. And I think one of the biggest dangers um, that any of us have, it's one that I've, I probably still suffer from to a certain degree, is to see, see these stories as uh, randomly collected. You know, like, okay, I gotta tell this story about Jesus, I gotta tell this story about Jesus, I'm going to tell this story about Jesus. And that's how we teach them, to make them into digestible bite-sized chunks. And that makes perfect sense for us to do that. And we look at this one story about Jesus calming the storm, right? And we draw some conclusions from it. And we move on to the next one. It makes perfect sense to do that. But 
what we want to do is to, to think a little more deeply about how we study the text. And there's a couple of assumptions that we must make. The first one is this, is that we have to hear the text in its original cultural and historical context, in its setting. Because we don't live in first century Israel, there are some nuances to that that we're just going to miss. So remember, uh, a lot of you have heard me say this, we're tourists. As soon as we open up the word, we are tourists. Not everything is going to make sense to us. And so we have to hear it in that context first. Secondly, we must ask the question, what is that author trying to communicate? What is that author trying to communicate specifically to the, his audience at the time? Then we decide how it applies to our lives. We can't just jump for, hey, the Bible's written for me. Well, sort of. First, it was written to some other folks. Let's figure that part out, and then let's see how it applies to us. Does that make sense? So Mark, in other words, and I think this is, this is important, is that he is a sophisticated author, and he has an agenda. He has something that he's trying to communicate. And if you don't believe me, good, because I'm going to try to persuade you. All right? So Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 6, everything that happens in between, um, because, you know, he calls them and he sends them out, and we actually read in verse 13 that he has some, they have some success, that they're able to cast out evil spirits and they're able to, to uh, uh, heal people at the same time. But I want you to notice something very important. When we talk about these um, different stories, I want to suggest to you that there's some movement within the story. And let's, let's see if we can dissect this just a little bit. First, <clears throat> is that when we, when we encounter Jesus calming the storm, we get an idea of what's happening with the individuals involved. Next slide. Verse uh, five, uh, actually, it should say 4.15, and they were afraid, right? They were afraid. We, we actually see Jesus saying, why are you so afraid? And then it says, well, they were terrified. They weren't terrified of the storm. They were terrified of the one who actually calmed the storm. I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? So we have that particular story, and they were afraid. Then you go to um, chapter 5, verse 15, with the garrison demoniac. Here's this village being terrorized by this demon-possessed man. They come and they find him clothed, sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus, and it says they were afraid. Because who, you've got the, the strongest guy on the city block who's causing problem, the biggest bully, and you've got some other guy who came in and took care of the bully. Who are you afraid of now? The one who took care of the bully, right? In fact, they actually asked Jesus, could you leave? You know, would, would it be okay? Because, you know... Think about that for a minute. And Jesus, very kindly, sure. So we have the disciples were terrified. And then we have the villagers who are terrified. But then we go on and we find this, this uh, um, woman who has been sick for so long. And she sneaks up behind Jesus. And she touches the hem of his garment. And she's immediately healed. And Jesus felt the power go out of him, which is a very interesting um, turn of a phrase. But he says, who did this? And she came up to him with fear and tremble, or trembling with fear, depending on your version. Right? And then, <clears throat> so we end up with the story of the, the, the young girl who's 
who has died. As he walks up, Jesus walks up, um, they said, don't concern yourself, she's already gone. And his comment was, don't be afraid. It says a couple of words, she's alive. And it says the people were astonished. There's movement in these stories. All of them are connected by this idea of fear. It's fascinating movement. And my, my suggestion, what I think it possibly means, is that Jesus is dealing with fear because for his disciples to do what he has called them to do, they're going to have to deal with fear. Their own fear. Because fear is that thing that holds us back. Fear is the thing that keeps us on the bench and, and keeps us from getting into the game. Uh, we ask ourselves, what if I'm wrong? We ask ourselves, uh, what if the people I'm talking to don't get it? What if um, they aren't healed if I pray for them? What if, what if, what if? What will they think of me? And the list goes on and on. And there are things that we don't do that we read in the, in the scripture because we're afraid that, well, does God still do that even today? We ask ourselves that. It may not be in the forefront of our mind, but it's there. It's something that we, we, we can think about. So fear is the thing that holds us back. We might not call it that. Oh, we might call it other words. I have a concern, <laughs> or I have an issue, right? But it's all the same thing. It's really these fears that we have in the back of our mind. And in the case of ministry, when we're actually being Jesus, when we're being the hands and feet of Jesus to our neighbors around us, <laughs> there is only one remedy to fear. There's only one, and it's simply this. Next slide. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is ultimately Lord. Now let me see if I can demonstrate some things for you in this progression of stories. Uh, here in Oklahoma, we understand natural disasters, don't we? Um, every time we get bad weather, I, I have friends from around the country who will text me or send me notes on Facebook, hey, you guys okay? And I'm like, yeah, it was like 30 miles to the north of us. No big deal, <laughs> right? I used to laugh and you know, the people who would um, stand out in their driveways and look up at the sky. And then the last time we had it, that was me. You know, I'm out there with all my neighbors going, hey man, is that a wall cloud? You know, I don't know. I don't even know what a wall cloud is, but I'm like, is that what that is? Do you see rotation? You know, you know we understand this idea of, of natural disasters, but notice that the disciples who are dealing with this natural disaster, they're, they're in this boat and they are desperate to try to find some way out of this. And so they wake him up and going, don't you care that this is happening to us? Disastrous for a small boat that, that happens there. And with a few words, Jesus says, be still, the wind and waves obey him. And what does he do in that moment? He establishes that he is Lord of creation. Even the scary parts. Jesus is Lord on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is Lord over all the scary stuff underneath the water. Jesus is Lord over the storm. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then we go on to the next story. And I, 
I keep thinking about this um, because every year it happens. And I, in October, um, I, I like Halloween. I like dressing up and I like, actually I like my kids' candy that they get on Halloween if I'm completely honest. But what I don't like are the billboards around town for the various haunted houses. I, I, you know, I, I can understand why Halloween can be fun. I just don't understand why it has to be evil. I don't get that. It makes me angry. I got a six-year-old. And try explaining those faces on the billboard to a six-year-old. Why is it so scary? I don't know, honey. I don't get it. Why does it have to be that way? And that's just the reality of the culture that we live in. And, and I think we have to be really careful about the types of things um, that we allow into our experience. You know, I know, you know some people like to, to watch scary movies and that sort of thing. Um, frankly, I don't want a foothold of fear in my life, so I don't watch them. I just don't. If you want to, that's fine. You know, that's cool. That's between you and Jesus, and, and that, that's not for me to judge. But why would you want a foothold of fear in your life? There's too many scary things in life to begin with. I don't need to manufacture, manufacture fear. And so when Jesus comes up with a demoniac, I mean the real thing, and I'll just tell you this, I've had two encounters with the, the demonic in my life. I do not relish a third, ever. I don't want that. And so when Jesus confronts this demonic presence and has a conversation with evil spirits, it, it's truly astonishing. You, this individual, this man who has all of these demons inside him, you cannot come up with a more desperate set of circumstances. Almost in all of Scripture. I mean, truthfully, if you look at the overall context of this story, absolutely desperate. And he terrorized an entire region around this side of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, everybody knew about this guy. You just stayed away from there because he lived in the tombs. That's just weird. So they said, you know, stay away from there. Jesus comes ashore and the demoniac comes towards him. He doesn't have a choice. He's got to deal with this issue. He's in desperate set of circumstances. And in this brief conversation, he does this miraculous cast them into a herd of pigs, the pigs kill themselves. And Jesus establishes that he is Lord over the forces of hell. So not only is he Lord of creation, he is Lord over, uh, over the spiritual realm, not just the physical realm. Do you see that? Really powerful. The few words. So the first two stories show these, these kind of broad categories physical world, spiritual world. But the next two get a little more personal, I think. At least they do in my mind. Nightly uh, at our house, we pray for two things for all of us, health and safety. Pray for health and safety for our girls. And we're a pretty healthy family overall, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And I know that um, many of us here have lost loved ones to illness, and so when we see Jesus encountering this woman who had been sick for so long, <laughs> she was desperate. Because one of the things you need to understand in that culture is that if uh, you had certain types of diseases, you were considered unclean. And unclean meant two things. You were unfit to worship God in his temple. 
and you were unfit to be in community with other people. You were completely isolated. In fact, in some cases, you would have to announce to the entire crowd, I am unclean. Boy, that would be fun to do at the mall, wouldn't it? And here she sneaks up on Jesus, touches him, which would have made him unclean himself. And yet, the scripture says the power went out of him and into her. So what does Jesus do in this set of circumstances over this desperate woman? With no words at all, he establishes that he is Lord over sickness and healing. And reintegrates her into worship, into community with God himself and the community of the people around her. A comprehensive healing, not just for the body, but also for the soul that she has because of the people around her she can reconnect to. It's a beautiful story. I, uh, I have two daughters. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose either one of them. When we encounter this final story, there is a leader in a local synagogue. He's like a pastor of a church. And he's desperate because his daughter is sick and nothing else is working. Go find the itinerant preacher who's doing the healings and let's see if he can do something. And so they come and they ask him. He's desperate to help his daughter. Hmm. And he shows up and they say she's already dead and with just a few words, he establishes that he is Lord over death and life. Which foreshadows Mark chapter 15 and an empty tomb. He is Lord over all these things. Hmm. And here's the interesting thing is that Jesus establishes himself as Lord over all of these these major life circumstances, things that we're often all afraid of, if we're completely honest. <laughs> and he takes all of that authority that he has and he confers it onto his disciples and said, okay, now you go out and do it. Which is truly an astonishing thought. But the motivator, the thing that's underneath all of this is the fact that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and I think that that simple phrase, that simple understanding, the fact that they witnessed it, they experienced it themselves, is what took a ragtag group, and make no mistake, we are talking about some kids, and we are talking about some ne'er-do-wells. He takes this ragtag group of 12 people, and those 12 people end up changing the entire world. We are here today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because of those 12 disciples who received authority from God to do his bidding and they understood that Jesus is Lord. Do we understand that? That's a powerful thought. Grand scheme. Hmm. So the reality is, reality check, is that we all have fear. We all do. We're human beings. We have fear. And here's the, here's the tough question, though. What's yours? 
What's your fear? What's the thing that holds you back? Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's a relationship that you have with uh, someone in your family. Maybe the fear is for your family because of what they're involved in or not involved in. (laughs) Maybe your fear is politics. Maybe it's world events. Maybe you have fears related to your house or your car or your stuff. Maybe your fear is related to how you're going to pay the bills. Or maybe even you have some fear related to your calling. Because God is calling you to a greater adventure. And following him means you've got to deal with some fears. So here's a question for us today. Can we just acknowledge the fact that we have fear? Can we just start there and just be honest about it and say, yep, I'm afraid of that. There's no judgment there. You don't have to be a tough guy, tough gal. It doesn't matter because we all have the fears. Let's just acknowledge it. Let's call it what it is because once you do call it what it is, then it actually frees you to actually do something about it. The worst thing is to have the fear and not acknowledge it and pretend like nothing's actually going on. And, and brothers and sisters, it is so painfully obvious to the people around you. <laughs> that you're dealing with it. That's just the truth of it. We, we understand that. So acknowledging it ourselves is kind of the first step. Gets us out of denial. And, and here's the second question, and I think this is just as important, because it's one thing to acknowledge it, but can we actually stop, look at the fear, and declare that Jesus is Lord over that too? That's where the rubber meets the road. I don't understand it. I don't like it. It's not what I want. I'm afraid of it. But Jesus is Lord over all of this, too. What would that do to our spiritual lives if we paused and asked ourselves that simple question? Is Jesus Lord over this, too? The answer is always the same. Yep, he is. And what does that do for us?